Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Please turn uh, with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're back in 1 Peter chapter 2. And for our text this morning, we'll be continuing um, beginning in verse 4 through verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious, ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, an holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation." a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. May God bless the reading of his word to us this morning. The title of this morning's message is The Identity and Mission of the Church. The Identity and the Mission of the Church. And I would like each of us this morning to consider the question, the simple question, what is the church? What is the church? Some see the church as simply a building, a place where people gather together to meet. Some see it as an organization that uh, conducts various functions and tasks and does good things. Some see the church as more of a social gathering place where people come together, um, make connections, meet new people, interact with one another. But what is the church? And more personally, I'd ask you, what is the church to you? How do you see the church? How do you understand what the church is? It's an important question. It's a question that we have to look to in the scriptures to find the answer to. Because the notions that all of us have about church need to be brought into alignment with the truth of the word of God. And what the, what the, the scriptures say about what the church actually is. Who and what the church is. What is its mission and its purpose. And it's important question because how you view the church, how you view the church will directly impact and ultimately dictate how you fit and function within the church, the local church. And this text in 1 Peter chapter 2 describes for us in no uncertain terms what the church is and what the church is to do. Makes those two things very clear for us. Now, as Christians, you know, we're, we find ourselves here in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
And um, we've been going through many of the, the, the scriptures and the different themes that Peter has addressed up until this point. And I think as Christians, we oftentimes have a tendency to think very individually. When we read something in the scriptures, we consider it and we apply it to ourselves very personally. And that's an important thing to do. Uh, that's right and good that we would apply the scriptures to ourselves. Even as we, like I mentioned, in First Peter here, we've a lot of subjects have been addressed. Things like the previous sermon that I preached uh, in First Peter here, which was about spiritual growth. We think of things in terms of our own spiritual growth, my growth. Or when Peter talked about loving one another, we think of the love that we have. Or uh, when Peter spoke about redemption, we think of my redemption or my holiness. All of these things, we have a tendency to apply them to ourselves individually and very personally. But the reality is that as believers, we are not simply individuals. We are not just um, an island, as it were. And Peter is not just addressing a person of God, but the people of God. God's new covenant people. That's who he is addressing, a group of believers, specifically churches in Asia Minor and groups of believers. That's who he's writing to in his letter here. So it's no surprise that as we come to the text that we have before us today, Peter addresses this group of believers, um, and, and, and he, he paints a picture of who, this, who these believers are collectively as a group. And he answers those two questions for us. What is the church, and what is the mission and the purpose of the church? You know, the scriptures uses a lot of different metaphors to describe the church, uh, the scriptures talks about the church as the bride of Christ. And there's an, il- there's many illustrations that it uses to describe her as the body, or, or as the bride of Christ. It also describes the church as a body. It uses the image of, of a body and how we are all fit within that body. Christ is the head and we are the various parts of that body and we are to function together as a body. But the scripture also uses another image of a temple. And that's the one that Peter uses here in our text this morning. A spiritual house, as he describes it. And I can't help but think that as Peter was writing these words, describing this spiritual house, he was remembering the words that Jesus spoke to him back in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus said specifically, directly to Peter, he said, I say unto unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock... Will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? This image of a church, of a spiritual house built upon a rock, which is Jesus Christ, the foundation of that church. And Paul even uses similar language, um, the similar metaphor to describe the church in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in which the whole building fitly joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built up together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. This is the image that the scripture uses to describe the church, this spiritual house. And this is the image that Peter uses to describe who and what the church is and what its mission and purpose is in this world. 
And it's essential that we understand this, both individually and how we, again, how we function within the church and collectively as a church, how we understand the church is absolutely critical. So this morning, with God's help, I'd like to um, go through these verses that we've read together, and I'll briefly explain to you verses 4 through 8 um, to sort of set the context and build this image. And then the focus of this message this morning will be on verse 9, answering those questions about the identity and the mission of the church. And along the way, I will make some applications. So, first of all, Christ is the head of the church The scriptures makes that clear. In every metaphor that the scriptures uses, whether it's of a body or of a building, uh, it it describes Christ as the head of the church. Verse 4 says, To whom coming, speaking of Christ here, as unto a living stone, disallowed or rejected indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. This is speaking about Jesus Christ, that he's a living stone. He's rejected by men. He's chosen by God and precious. All of these things are true of Christ. He's a living stone because he's alive. He resurrected from the dead, and he is that, that living stone, as it says. He is, he is alive and the first fruits of the resurrection, as it says in Romans chapter 8. He was rejected by men. Actually, Brother Sam preached about that last Sunday in, in Matthew chapter 21, And he expounded the parable that Jesus gave of Christ coming and being rejected by the Jews and by the religious leaders. And he was preaching directly to them, Jesus, when he, when he spoke that parable. And he prophesied, even at the end of that text, he said, um, he, he, he referenced the same verse that's referenced in our text today, Psalm 118, where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Peter, in Acts chapter 4, when declaring Christ to the Jews uh, with boldness at the beginning of the, the foundation of the church, he declared to them, he said, the stone that has been set at naught of the builders, he used that same reference to talk about this stone, Jesus Christ, that cornerstone that was rejected by the nation of Israel. And it says that he is chosen by God and honored. Though he was rejected, ultimately he was exalted. He was chosen by God. He was exalted by God. And he's precious. He is honored. And this really is a pattern for us as believers as we think about our own lives and we follow in the footsteps of Christ. For many of us, we, and especially actually for these believers who the Apostle Peter is writing to, they were rejected in society. It says that they were the exiles. They were scattered exiles in this world. They had been rejected. And just like Christ had been rejected, they too were rejected. Yet ultimately, Christ was exalted and we too shall be exalted. Though despised and persecuted and rejected, yet we are chosen and honored in God's sight. And Peter makes this connection to these believers. And he says in verse 5, he says, Ye also as living stones, so that's that connection here, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So he's comparing Christ and the church, that we are all living stones. Just like Christ is the cornerstone, we too are living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house both collectively, both individually and collectively as a group. We are living stones being built up. And he talks about the priesthood and spiritual sacrifices. We'll get to that in a moment. 
But then in verse 6, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 26. He says, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So he uses another image here, or he uses the image of Christ as the cornerstone. And and we don't really understand this. Perhaps some of us who are in construction um, can understand this better, but basically the cornerstone was that stone with which everything else was built around. It's the stone that you um, plumb line to, as it were, and that you build around, that chief cornerstone. And it's a beautiful image that, that Peter is using here of Christ um, being that chief cornerstone. Romans, I, I think of Romans chapter 11, verses 36, it says, speaking of Christ, it says, From him and through him and to him are all things. All things consist in him. He is the chief cornerstone. And the church, the spiritual house, takes its shape from him. And then it says, And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded or disgraced. For those who believe, he is precious to them. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, it says that you shall not be confounded. You shall not be disappointed, as it were. And I think this is such a glorious truth when we think about what this scripture is saying. That those who are in Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, will not be confounded. And I preach to you this morning from God's word with that message. The same message that Isaiah chapter 28 gives to us. That in Christ, you will not be confounded. And for those who are outside of Christ and wondering, is it worth it? Is, is Christ something, someone that I want to pursue after? And all I would say to you is that in Christ, you will not be confounded. Christ will not disappoint you. He that believeth in him will not be disappointed. So put your faith in Jesus Christ. In this life, it may not seem like it. As you look from the vantage point of this world and you think, is it really worth it? I would challenge you to consider your life in the light of eternity Because your life is just a vapor. What is your life? It's nothing in the light of eternity. Christ is everything in the light of eternity. And I can promise you with the assurance of the word of God that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you will not be disappointed, as this scripture says. Verses 7 and 8 goes on to say that, make a contrast. It says, but unto them which be disobedient, and then it quotes again from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. And then Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. For those who are disobedient, for those who reject Christ, who see Christ and reject him, he is a stumbling block He's a stumbling block because you do not obey the word of truth. He was a stumbling block to the Jews because they did not obey his word. They had no faith. They remained in darkness, and Christ was their stumbling block. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 um, says that Christ was, to the Jews, a stumbling block. And in Romans chapter 9, it says, speaking about the nation of Israel, it says, they sought it not by faith, but as it were the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. What was that stumbling stone? It was Christ. It was justification by faith in Christ alone. That's what they stumbled at. And they did not look to Christ for their righteousness. And they could not look 
Because they were blinded, they could not see. They were as blind as Bartimaeus was before God opened, before Jesus opened his eyes to see the truth. They were spiritually blind, and as a result, they rejected Christ. And he was a stumbling block to them. But, Peter contrasts that, their disobedience, with that of the church. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we come to this glorious verse in verse 9, which I will meditate on now for the rest of the sermon. And I think it's a verse that is so um, ingrained in our mind when we think of First Peter. This is probably the, the, one of the theme verses of this entire letter, which says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the church, the church of Jesus Christ. This spiritual house made up of living stones offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God because of Jesus Christ and all for the glory of God. What a contrast. What a contrast there is between those who are disobedient, who reject Christ, who is a stumbling block to them. What a contrast to the church. As this verse describes what the church is, who the church is, and its mission and its purpose, all laid out for us in this beautiful verse. Now, this was not... Surprisingly, um, original to Peter, as much as it seems we, we attribute these, this, this imagery that Peter uses of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, Peter was not the one who originally spoke these words, but these words, this imagery was drawn from the scriptures. This is where Peter is drawing this from in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. And listen to the words here that that God uses as he describes his chosen people. He says, Tell the children of Israel, If ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You can see the imagery that Peter is drawing from here. In Exodus chapter 19, where he, he's taking this from the Old Testament and he's now applying this to the church, to God's new covenant people. And it's not to say that the nation of Israel is um, not part of the church. In fact, Romans chapter 11, Peter descri- or sorry, Paul describes for us um, this, the contrast of, of what, or the, describes for us what's happened with the nation of Israel and how God is working among them and how they have rejected him and how God has a new covenant people. But the nation of Israel is still God's chosen people. But the church today is made up, the church today made up of all tribes, all tongues, all nations is God's new covenant people. They are the church of Jesus Christ. And the first image that Peter uses to describe this church is that of a chosen generation. He says a chosen generation. Up until the coming of the Messiah, uh, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. In Amos chapter 2, it says, you only have I known or chosen out of all the families of the earth. 
The nation of Israel was God's special people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 says, For thou art a holy nation unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are on the face of the earth. God set his favor upon the nation of Israel. He chose them through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and his descendants. He chose them to be his own. And he asked the question, why? Why would God do this? And why, why did God choose the nation of Israel? What was so special about them? Was there something special about them that he chose them specifically? The next two verses in Exodus 7 describe for us the motive of why God chose them. It makes it very clear. It says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you are more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. It was not that they were better than other nations. It was not because they were greater than other nations, greater in number than other nations. No, it says here, but because the Lord loved them, he chose them. And similarly, it is because of God's love It is because of his grace, his unmerited favor towards us. Unmerited, we did not deserve it. It is because of his love and his grace towards us that he has chosen us, his church, those living stones, his people, to be his new covenant people. Not because we were better than anyone else. Not because we were special in some way. But because he loved us and chose us In spite of our weakness, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our sinfulness, he chose us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For you see your calling, brethren. You see your calling, brothers and sisters. How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, that's by his doing, are ye in Christ Jesus. Of him are you in Christ Jesus. It is not because we were the strongest or the wisest or had anything to offer God of ourselves that he chose us, but because of him, by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. We are Christ Jesus. We are his chosen, we are a chosen generation, not by merit, not because we deserve it, but by the grace of God, we are precious in his sight because we are his chosen people. And before we move on, I'd like to make one application to this that relates to us here because, and I want to ask the question, what do you see when you look out at your brothers and sisters in Christ? When you look around you at those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are chosen by God, precious in his sight, what do you see? Do you see them as precious, as precious as he does? Do you love them and value them the way that God loves and values his chosen people? Think of what God has done for his chosen people. He sent his son to die for them. 
He extended his love, though they despised him and rejected him, were sinful. While we were yet in sin, Christ died for the ungodly. God did all of this for us. He sacrificed so much. He demonstrated so much love towards us. Yet we struggle sometimes to love our brother and sister in Christ and to see them as precious as God sees them. Precious in his sight. Chosen and precious. And I want to extend this even further beyond our local church to all of the children of God. How do we see those within the universal church, the true children of God? Do we love and value them in this same way? Even though they're not from our church, even though they may not talk or act or look like us, Sometimes I, I am worried. I am worried that sometimes we look out at those who are God's children spread across the face of the earth and we see them as, in a sense, subpar. And we sort of elevate ourselves, similar to the way that the children of Israel elevated themselves, that they were God's chosen people. They were special. And they looked down on others and they rejected others as a result. But all of God's true children are his chosen people, and we are to love them and value them just the way God loves and values those those whom he has chosen. Secondly, the church is a royal priesthood. Another rich image that Peter uses here to describe the church. Consider the role of the priests in the Old Testament. For those of us who understand how the priesthood worked, they were those who were set apart uh, of the tribe of Levi, specifically appointed by God uh, for the task to perform sacrifices, to conduct the affairs of the church and of the worship of God. They were the ones who were the mediators between God and his people. And they were the only ones who had access into the inner temple, that holy of holies. And when Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple, which took place um, less than 60 years after his death, Israel's priesthood, in a sense, came to an end. And with the establishment of the kingdom of heaven, there was a new priesthood, a royal priesthood with Christ as king and his church, his sons and daughters, are now his royal priests. That's all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a royal priesthood with Christ as our king, and we are being built up into a spiritual house, as it says, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. They are acceptable to God because of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we know that the sacrifices that they offered, those perpetual sacrifices, could never truly be acceptable to God because they did not atone for sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can atone for sins, and it is only through Jesus Christ that our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God. This is the church. It's not a place, but a people, a royal priesthood, and offering spiritual, not physical, but spiritual sacrifices acceptable by God on the merit of Jesus Christ. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we have access to God into that holy of holies as his royal priests. Just like the priests were the only ones that could come before the Father. They did not need a mediator. They could go directly to the Father. We have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ as his royal priesthood. I think of 
Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access, we have access into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand through Jesus Christ, through being justified by faith in him. The church is a royal priesthood set apart for his work. And there's so much purpose in that, so much purpose and responsibility when we think of that, that we are a royal priesthood. Consider the purposes of the priesthood. Consider the task that they performed and what they were commissioned And how we, as the church, are commissioned by God to be his very hands and feet, to perform those tasks that the priests performed in the Old Testament. And to live lives that are set apart and totally dedicated to the work of God. That's our calling, brother and sister in Christ. As the church, we are called to dedicate, to set apart and dedicate our lives to God's work. That's why we are here on this earth. That's why God left us here when he saved us. He didn't just take us up to heaven right away. He left us here to be his hands and feet and to perform the spiritual sacrifices, as it were, and to to fulfill those things that he has commissioned us to do here on this earth. And each of us, each of you, within the body, within this spiritual house, play an important part within that function. And God has gifted you uniquely in ways to function within the church here on this earth, as long as you are here on this earth. In chapter 4, just one page over, chapter 4, verse 10, it says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each of you have received a gift. Each of us have been given gifts by God to use within his church, to serve the church. Next verse, verse 11 says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do so as of the ability which God has given, that God in all things may be glorified through Christ Jesus. God's given you a gift, whether it's the gift to speak, the oracles of God, to encourage, to teach. Use that gift. God's given you the gift to serve to minister. It says, if any man minister or serve, let him do so with the ability that God has given you. I know for a fact that each one of you who are part of the church, who are one of those living stones, have been given gifts by God, and you are called to use those gifts to bless the church, and ultimately, as it says, um, to use them according to the ability which God has given, that in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Whatever ability God's given you, employ it to bless others for the glory of God. We are all priests, and we are all set apart for his service. Next, we are a holy nation. The church is a holy nation. Holy is to be set apart, called out of this world, as it were, and, and in some ways unsettled, much like these exiles who were scattered. It says scattered abroad, We are exiles. This world is not our home. Christ has established his kingdom, not a physical kingdom like he did the nation of Israel and gave them a land, but our home is in heaven. And we are not the nation of Israel. We are now a holy nation. The church, the people of God, no longer have their identity identity within a worldly nation, but now they are identified as a holy nation. 
Holiness is what defines them. And the church is to be holy, set apart, consecrated for God. And that's different from any other nation that's in this world. They are to be a nation, a people that are defined by holiness. This goes back to verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, But ye which have been called, sorry, but he that has called you, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. In every way that you live, in your, in your lifestyle, be holy, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. We take on the identity of God as our heavenly father, and we as his people are to be a holy people, a holy nation, called out of the world, out of darkness, into his marvelous light, as it says, to be a holy nation defined by holiness. And finally, last but not least, a peculiar people. What is the church? The church is a peculiar people. Now, the King James uses the word peculiar, um, which is somewhat of a, a difficult word for us to, to translate. When it says peculiar people, it does not mean strange or unusual or weird or odd. When people look at us, they shouldn't look at us and say, wow, those are peculiar people, weird people, strange people. They may think that the things we do is strange, but that's not the intention of what this is getting at. It actually has nothing to do with the way that we look, but more so, I think the ESV renders it better. It says, a people for his own possession. We are a people for his own possession. We belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6. Ye are not your own. You have been bought with a price. We belong to God. We have been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has purchased us and we belong to him. He is our Lord. He is our master and our allegiance is to him and him alone because we are a people of his own possession called out of this world, called out of darkness into his marvelous light as it says. Verse 10, it says, once not a people but are now the people of God. Once we have not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. You see this contrast here of being called out of this world to be his chosen people, his royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people that are of his own possession. He owns us because he has redeemed us. That is our identity. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And finally, at the end of verse 9, we see the mission of the church. And this wraps it all up together. First, we understand what the church is. We have to understand what the church is so that we can fulfill the mission for which God has called us to. And the end of verse 9 declares that mission so clearly. We see the mission of the church, not just the identity, but the mission or the purpose of the church. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? For what purpose? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The one aim, the one purpose, the one mission of the church is to glorify Christ. That sums it up. It sums it all up in one simple mission, to glorify Christ. This is what we are to do as the church, to show forth, to declare the praises of him, the glory of him. Who's the him? It's Christ. That's who it's speaking about him here. He is the one that we glorify. Remember, Christ is the cornerstone. 
He's, he's the head. He's the one that the spiritual house, house is built around. Everything, the whole house is built around him and everything must be brought into alignment with him. He is the spiritual house. Christ is the cornerstone and anything that is not in line with the cornerstone is out of place. And that is an indictment to all of us as we examine our lives, consider how we function as a church. If it is not in alignment with the cornerstone, if it is not serving its purpose to glorify Christ, it is not fulfilling its mission. And every member, every living stone within the church, every ministry within the church must find its roots in this purpose, this mission to glorify Christ. And if it's not, it's drifted. It's turned away. It's come out of alignment and it's not fulfilling the purpose for which it was intended. So we can ask ourselves as we examine our church, as we examine our place within that spiritual house, as we examine the different ministries, is this bringing glory to God ultimately? Is it declaring the excellency of Christ? Is our preaching, is our Sunday school, is our CFG, is our small groups, is our evangelism, is our worship, is our fellowship, is it all declaring the glory of Jesus Christ? That is the question. And if it's not, then it's out of alignment. It is not in step with that chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And it is time for us as a church, this is my call to you, it's time for us to wake up and to examine ourselves as a church. And ask ourselves, are we fulfilling this mission? Are we fulfilling the mission of the church to show forth, to declare the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? God is building his church, and you and I are the living stones that he is using to build up his church. His church will stand. His church will endure to the end because he is building his church. And he has called us to participate and to function and to exist and to live within that church, to be that chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And our mission is to show forth the praises, the glory of Christ in all that we do. And that is my prayer and my hope for each of you, that we would understand what the church is and what our mission as the church is, ultimately to glorify Christ in all that we do. May God bless his word to us this morning. Amen.